collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Collective Power. I'm pleased to have as our guest today, Bernadette Pleasant. Hi, Bernadette. Hi, it's so good to be here, Rita. Thank you for having me. And um, you're virtually in Germantown right now, which is awesome. It's great to virtually have you in Germantown since this is Germantown Radio. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to be anywhere right now. Exactly. I feel like I'm, uh, I get to travel vicariously. So let's do it. Yeah, wonderful. Our theme for this month is looking at white supremacy in the body. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I chose this theme for this month is that I had the impression that after Biden got inaugurated, we would all have a deep breath of like, <sighs> well, maybe not everyone, but those of us who were in tension before, as opposed to rallied up and excited before, like for those of us for whom the last four years have been very tense, I suspected we were going to get a deep breath. And I thought it was important to connect with people like yourself who have been experts in the somatic place, that breath and embrace it and possibly breathe deeper. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I have, I can't relate to that, to the deep breath. I mean, let's face it, it's been hard to breathe for four years and it's been hard to breathe for for a lot longer than that for people of color. And so I just think the last four years under Trump's administration, it it became a more dangerous place to be in the world uh, as a person of color. And I think Biden has some ideas, but I think we all good ideas. And I so much reluctance, but to trust. And there's gratitude. I'm glad he's there. I I mean, I wanted him in office. I wanted to see change. I did not want to see things continue in the way in which they were. And there is some ease in the breath. There isn't a deep breath. Fair enough. Absolutely. So I'm wondering as a kickoff question before we get more into breath and the body, and uh, I love what you say, a breath, but not a deep breath. I'm wondering if you can tell us a story about yourself that has us know a little bit more about you and why you're passionate about this topic. I'm passionate about this topic because of how far reaching it is, how complex it is, and how in so many ways we buy into, there's a, a perceived danger and how that impacts people's lives. I will share with you Sadly, I can think of a number of them, and perhaps during this time, we'll, there'll be moments to share. I want to first thank you for asking for a story. It is my approach to how we get to be and live and commune together because we get to understand one another. We get to understand one another, and I think it's from that place that we it's my desire that in the future, rather than making an assumption, we catch ourselves and say, oh, just maybe there's another possibility or another way of looking at it. Or maybe that thing 
or person that I assume could be a threat could be just living their lives, quite honestly, and just doing ordinary things. The story I'm going to share with you happened many years ago with my mother-in-law living with us. Helen was late 80s and much to my husband and our my surprise she started to she lived alone in Brooklyn and very feisty and um just energetic and just always out walking about her neighborhood and terribly independent and we got a call one night from a neighbor who had come home at three o'clock in the morning from a party and she found Helen outside in a nightgown. And in the course of a week, we started to one strange story after another and we realized, oh my gosh, she's just not all there. And taking her to doctors and we're trying to figure out what it is and, and we get this diagnosis, Alzheimer's. And it was moving very quickly. Not knowing what to do, we just thought, bring her home. Let's just, just bring her to our house. And after consulting with her doctors, and we did not necessarily want to take this on. However, the thought of putting her in a, putting her in a home and in the suddenness for which this took place. So we brought her home and we found out very quickly with all the right intentions to take care of her. Our hearts were in the right place, but our home and our skill set was not such that we could properly care for her. My husband is white, and so my mother-in-law uh, is this 80, at that time, 85-year-old white woman. I am a woman of color. And this was quite a burden, taking care of her. She would be up all night. Lots of accidents. Um, we have a staircase in our house. It, our house was just not set up for this. Helen stayed with us for seven months before we had to do something. But this story takes place. That was sort of just some groundwork to understand. As I start to tell you about this particular fall day, I had become accustomed to this thing called wandering that people who are stricken with this disease do. And I learned how to work with this every day, pretty much. At a certain time, she would become very agitated and just had to go. She had to go get her sons from school. Now, granted, her sons are in their late 50s and 60s, but in her mind, she is going to pick them up from elementary school and she's running late. So she would get into this panic and I learned to work with this. I had closed my business, sold it actually, and then I'm home trying to figure out my next step in life. And it was certainly not to be caring for my mother-in-law in this way and in our house. And this particular day, we'd been up all night with her. Ron had gone to work and it was the afternoon and I'm sitting in my office and I heard her at the screen door and she's looking outside and she starts to fidget with the door. And I know this all too well. And she walks outside and I just automatically, I grab my wallet, I grab my keys and I walk out. This is our routine. I learned at this point to don't try to stop her because you are trying to stop a mother on her way to get her kids and she is worried. She has some place she has to go. And I started to walk behind her and I'm about 20 feet behind her. I'm just walking behind her and she walks for a few blocks. The routine basically was, I can start to tell by the gait and her walk and the way she starts to move, she's getting tired. And when she's tired, she's far more reasonable. I can approach her then and 
I would talk to her and then we'd make our way back home. This particular day, Helen walked. She turned down a different block. It was all just a few blocks from the house, but she's moving in a different route. And she walks past someone who's outside gardening and the person says to her, or she, she mentions something about the flowers and says how beautiful the flowers are. And as she slowed down to have this exchange, she looks over her shoulder, she sees me, and she says, stop following me. I think nothing of it. I am exhausted. I have been up all night. The night's on end. She continues to walk. I continue to follow. And about a half block away, I see my entire police force come out. I live in a town where we just don't see the police often, and then certainly not with sirens blaring and many cars coming from all directions. And I panic because I think something is happening. My God, what is going on? Because they're coming in towards where we are. And I'm thinking something is happening in the house right that we're walking past. So I close in on her to make sure she's okay. And then police are jumping out their cars. They are shouting. And I'm being called all kinds of names. Get away from her. And I mean, the way I was attacked. I was so shocked that I honestly did not know what was going on in that moment. I didn't realize that I was the threat that the neighbor who was gardening saw because of that exchange. I mean, what was she to think? But the level of force that came upon me, it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. That event happened about 15 years ago. I still feel the fear in my body. I couldn't get a word out and I'm trying to explain. They're asking me questions, but they're shouting them. Um, it's not like my mother-in-law can speak up for me. She doesn't even know who she is, let alone who anybody else is. And it was a dangerous situation. And it never occurred to me that I would be in a dangerous situation by caring for her. This was insulting and embarrassing to say the least more than that it affirmed so many things my husband called right about this time uh, they're asking me for id they're shouting and i i mean i'd lived in my town for 20 years at that point i'm like i am a tax paying whatever no one deserves this treatment they didn't come upon a scene of me beating an old lady. I was 20 feet behind, or gotten closer at this point because I thought something was going on in this house. I know that if I were not encased in my skin, there may have been a question asked and an opportunity to answer. I may not have been treated like I was a threat to this older white woman's life. I might have been given an opportunity for questions. My husband called, he showed up at the scene. He walks up and Helen always recognized him. She didn't recognize her other sons um, and other people, but she always recognized him. And she said, like, what are you doing here? And he says, you know, came to see what's going on. and." The police ask him, they say, this woman referring to me says she's your wife. And he says, she is. And they went and got in their cars. They were done. They were like, oh, well, everything is okay. I cannot begin to tell you. He just got to show up and be white and it was okay. I was under attack. I look forward to a time when stories like that are not happening where benefit of the doubt is given regardless to skin color. What does it feel like in your body to tell that story now? 
I feel the racing, the adrenaline. I feel my heart palpitating. I feel myself using my tools to calm myself that that is not now, that that is why I do what I do. I want different for my grandsons. I want different for anybody. I want people to get, have an opportunity to be treated. I want people to see a situation, look at it. It only takes a beat to look at it. It's, it's interesting situation. I don't, if, if there's a problem, I'm gonna call the police. I am grateful for the work they do. I am concerned about how it's done but it speaks to the thinking of people. And I don't want this feeling in my body. I want to see police coming when there's a situation thinking that they are showing up for a potential threat and not to come with an assumption because I think that's how innocent people get killed innocent people that are not given the benefit of the doubt. This thing about privilege that the difference of being asked a question and having a conversation versus coming in for the attack, therein lies the difference of why many innocent people end up hurt or dead felt like my life was being threatened in that moment the i could not believe the shouting and i was so stunned by many different people dressed in blue to protect who were they protecting i didn't feel i didn't feel protected and there was an assumption that i was a threat i feel that thing in my throat that tightening in my body and my hips i feel the the mist of sweat that shows up when there is perceived danger or fear i feel that and it it does not feel good it it just doesn't and the, the outrage that shows up for me, both in my mind and in my body, as you tell the story, is that he wasn't even asked ID. Oh, Contrast. Oh, totally. Like your husband wasn't even asked ID. And the total trust, like blind trust yeah. versus blind threat. Absolutely. Like no middle ground, right? Like nothing in the middle. I was being asked for ID. And I remember in the moment, like at one point, I, I, was, I was holding it in my hand. My wallet was in my hand. And at one point I remember going for the ID and fearful that one of these yelling people at me as I'm watching sirens blaring and police running around like circling me. I was afraid to fucking reach, excuse me, into my wallet. I was afraid to move. And I was so shocked. But meanwhile, he did call and my husband called because he had walked home. He just happened to be, have come home shortly after she and I left the house. And he was just wondering where we were. So at, in the midst of all of this, I did answer my phone. Like if, when I think back on it, it feels like one of those, it felt like shell shock when uh, watching a movie and we'll see like an explosion. The only other time I felt it, like I, I, those movie scenes are when a bomb blast has gone off and people look stunned and shocked. I can recall some years ago, I was in a car accident uh, in New York City, I, my car, I was driving and it dropped into a pothole and all the airbags deployed. And I was in the car with some friends and I remember not knowing what happened. Someone in the car said to me, 
like it, we weren't even in an accident with other cars that we just dropped into a pothole so hard that all the airbags deployed. But I remember just being stunned. I had no idea what was going on. And there's this freeze thing the body goes into when you're in total shock. This is what was happening. I was being asked for ID. I felt, how dare you ask me for this? I don't just live in my town. I live in my town. Like, and I just felt in this moment, like there was this insult to my me as a human and for him to have the time granted we were only two and a half blocks away from our house for him to have driven up to the scene gotten out of the car and you know it's funny in hindsight it seems like this whole thing took a lot longer than it did but i remember him walking up at this point his mom had sat down on someone's lawn the house we were in he and she's watching this like you know she's very casual with him and the police were just like oh well it's just over and i thought no it's not and ron was saying to me let's go home let's get in the car and i couldn't get in the car i could not shake this thing that had just happened i walked for hours because i needed to move this experience, I couldn't get to the words. I remember coming home hours after walking and I remember him just saying, please get in the car. And I just kept saying, I can't, I can't. And I was so angry. Like, how do you explain this? This man loves me. He's a wonderful man, but I needed him to, in that moment, I needed him to open his mouth and he just wanted this to be over. And I understand that. But in that moment, I needed a champion. I needed someone to say this here was not okay, but he wasn't there for the whole thing granted, but he could tell I had been deeply impacted. He had not seen this. I had not experienced and for it to just be over it like evaporated, nothing happened. There's a sense of unfairness fairness about this that is that runs so deep and I came home later that day and I just remember thinking and I just said to him I she has to go she has to go and he just said okay yeah and we found her a place to be I found her a beautiful place to be that was safer for her and safer for me but my concern had always been her is our house safe enough? Do I know how to handle the, the, the stairs, the, the shower? Like, do, is our place safe for her to be? It, I never thought about my safety while caring for her. So you speak so eloquently about, well, now, right? Now that the shock is over, yeah. about what it felt like in your body and what it feels like now and it taking time to recover. What did you have to do from healing from that experience? Like what did it actually take to shake that out or did it or not? It, I think it has definitely dissipated, but it has left an indelible mark. It has left for so long, there's this thing that I noticed that happens with people when they are afraid is they, they lose their ability to talk about something. The injustice, and it is not lost on me that a neighbor really was just concerned for her. I, trust me, it is not, you know, how dare that woman, you know, call the police. That woman, when I go back to that instant, I'm not sure I would have been it was more the way in which things were handled. You know, if you see something, do something, you know? I could have been a threat, I suppose, but I think it was just the way something was handled. There was nothing talked about. And, you know, I did not need eight police cars. You're supposed to feel safe when you see them, not worried that you're not necessarily 
safe because of your skin. I want to be able to call them if there's a problem too and not worry about possibilities. You know, I want the, the jokes that we have made. I remember once we have an alarm system on our house and the alarm company, we were testing something and they wanted us to set it off intentionally. And I remember looking at the phone when they told me this and I'm thinking, I am a, and I said, I'm a black woman, you must be crazy. This is wired to the police. We're going to set this thing off intentionally. And I said to Ron, you know, I'll set it off, but I'm hitting the floor. They'll ask you questions. They'll shoot my ass. It's said in jest and, you know, there's a lot of truth in jest, sadly. I'm intrigued by what you're saying around um, like some of it is released, some of it you've let go of, and there's an indelible mark that still is there. It is from there. From this experience. What does healing look like then? Sure. If healing isn't having it disappear, right? I, I think a lot of us look at healing like it's fixing it, no. right? It's like disappear. Then what does healing look like? I think healing looks like being aware of it. You know, there's this thing in the body, you know, the, here's the thing that happened, the dot, if you will, on, a, on just a blank screen. That's what happened. That's the story. That was the day I walked out walking behind her then how I relive that story and tell that story over and over to myself, I feel it as if I am experiencing it over and over and over again. And that's the difference of something living in your body. And then you're living like you are, you know, this happens with um, our troops, you know, people come home and they're like, they're right in the midst of the danger. They're still there, even though it's happened because our bodies have been traumatized. That is what happened. So that was a very, that was a traumatic experience. So what I get to do is to dissect it, to look at it, to speak about what it felt like. Healing does not happen without being witnessed. So I need to talk about it. I need to say this thing that I would rather not talk about. I need to speak about it because it is my own healing that happens when I do. Not only does my own healing happen, but others' eyes gets to be opened so that if they have or see an experience, they might look at it a little differently. Okay, let's not be myopic about this and see it just from one angle. How about an aerial view? How about a look from the left or the right or from behind? Let's be more full in how we're looking at this. And that's what I've done personally as well. Yes, that felt this way. And I got to have a voice in that. I did what my body needed to do. I didn't get in the car because in that moment, I couldn't. I needed to go for the walk. I am grateful for every little thing because every little thing matters. I came home. I remember walking home, going into my office, and I started to check out nursing homes. I wanted something in close proximity. I wanted to care for her, but it was an act of love towards me. I walked upstairs to Ron, who is just damn near mute at this point because he does not know what to say. And I began to explain what happened. And I tried to share what it felt like in my body. There were lots of tears. I remember shaking, literally shaking from trauma. I remember I needed to write a letter to the police in my town, letting them know how I felt about that. There were things I needed to do so that I could move I didn't sleep for many nights after that because I was so afraid, but I did something for me. I made sure she got the best care somewhere else because I was not going to have that experience ever again. That to me is progress. That is healing. Healing looked like checking in and seeing what do I need right now? And now, what do I need right now? And it, it's 
tiny, minute steps, but all of it led to a deeper care for me, a lot of self-love, a lot of moving slow, a lot of not wanting to have a hardened heart around this experience. Bernadette, I honor you for all the healing you've had to do to share in the way you're sharing, right? Because we can tell our stories and it's very much a mind activity. And the picture you're painting is so vivid. It's like, I'm here, you're in your room, I'm in my room. Um, we turned off video, right? right. So yeah. I'm literally only hearing your voice. And just like the listeners, like I can see this vividly unfolding and it's a testament to the healing you've done that you can share it in this way. Because it takes a specific kind of healing to be able to dive into it this way yeah. and paint a picture, right? Thank you so much for saying that because to me it matters. I want to tell my very real stories in such a way that people get to be in place and time so that whenever something happens in their daily lives, whether they're witnessing something or seeing something, they're able to just take a beat and say, wait a minute, could this be something else? Could, am I reacting or responding or thinking a particular way because of conditioning? It only takes that moment. We're all human. But when we've done the work, when we literally have read a book or put something in motion because we heard something, we're responding to it. That's where we get to see like, oh, before I would have made that assumption. Now I'll take a moment and think, what else is possible? What else could it be? Let me ask a question and get a response. And then you get to weigh and see if this is something, but just slowing down. I find that with regards to fear and white supremacy and, and its impact on us, if we slow down and be less reactive to things, we actually might have a moment to feel into our humanness because that's what fear and racism, even the racism that is so much of it is programmed and it's not conscious. It's we're doing it unconsciously. But if we slowed down, we might ask a question and that can mean the difference of someone's life. So one of the things that stood out for me in your experience as a white woman who aims to be an ally, a partner, a sister, a friend, whatever, whatever the fill in the blank is, is that like I resonate with your husband not getting it and not knowing what to say, right? Not knowing what to do. Yes. Because his body is not your body, right? And your body is not his body. And my body isn't his body either, but there are ways that his, that the the experience is resonating with situations I've found myself in. And I think as white folk, part of us needing to surrender, not knowing, comes from the fact, first of all, we don't have the same ancestral, we may not have, some white people do, but sure. sometimes we don't have the same ancestral lineage. And so we're not resonating with the oppression of 500 years, right? Yeah which creates a certain experience in the body. So part of us learning to ask questions and listen and just kind of yield, right? Yeah. This is white people, we have to learn to yield. And part of needing to yield is accepting that we literally don't have the same epigenetic framework. Yes. So it feels different in our bodies, right? Yes. So when in a meeting or in a conversation or an experience like yours, you hear white people say, well, for me, that wasn't racism. Well, yeah, of course it wasn't. It's not your body structure, right? You're not carrying 
the legacy that this person is carrying. So it's not going to resonate for you. Yes. And part of us learning to be in partnership is being present and holding the other person's experiences valid, whether or not it resonates for us. Exactly. And, yeah. Thank you. I, I love that you worded it just like that. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I think far too often for people of color would have happened almost willing to bet many things is that had I been following behind her and I was white, I would have been asked questions. I was asked questions, but they were shouting and they were frightening. It wasn't, and they were all coming at the same time. And I was literally being ganged up on. There would have been a conversation a why are you following her and a pause of explanation of what I was doing. That is where the racism piece comes in. That and I got my different. thought back. So sure. I'm going okay. to share it for a second. Sure. So the other piece that we as white folk is very much in alignment with what you're saying. Um, I'm probably, maybe it's just a rewording and a rephrasing, although I don't really need to because you're super clear. But it's the, the somatic experience that white people don't have and that um, took me years of studying the system and being with families who have the system unleash on them every day, mm -hmm. that we don't have an embodied experience of a system unleashing against you. And that's what I hear your experience is, right? It's not just that you had one police officer or two or three or even four police officers and one shouting at you, right? Like you have an, a massive amount of strength against your one body. And here you are completely disarmed, walking, yeah. right? Like there's, there's absolutely nothing threatening about you on the surface, right? Or in, in truth versus their perception of the truth. And yet you see this whole system with all its strength unleashed against you. And I think in my experience, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think people of color live with the experience of the system being unleashed against them and normal life being a teeny tiny tripwire every day. Yes. At, yes, indeed. And when you don't know that experience, you can't see it. I mean, how... I could describe to you, you know, some phenomenon that has happened and it could have been just the most amazing thing. But if you can't fathom it, it sounds like I made this thing up. First of all, it sounds crazy because it should sound crazy because it is crazy. And that doesn't change the fact that it's not real. I mean, just imagine there was a time when women used to go away to have babies. So if she is showing all these signs of pregnancy and then she goes away and comes back with this beautiful thing wrapped in a bunting and she describes to men what her experience of pushing this baby out and the, the pain and the whatever, but he was absent to it. He hasn't seen it. He hasn't been there for it. He hasn't, he can't quite understand. And then she does it again. Like I use that example of, because if you're not, he will never know what it's like for her to push this baby out. He can't know that. He can be there and with her squeezing the hand and the whole bit, she, he, there are ways he can come in closer to the experience, be an ally for her, help her breathe, be there partnering with her on this journey, he will never know what it's like to push a life out of his body. He cannot have that experience. It doesn't mean that it's not real for her. It is very real for her. He may never relate, but it, it does not mean it didn't happen. Is there anything that you've learned from this experience or others in terms of advice who you have for those who don't have a personal experience to resonate in particular in this case white folk right so 
like how do we accompany? Do you have any suggestions or insights around that? I definitely think, you know, what I'm so grateful for is this, I am sickened by what it took to get to this point. It's been said, and I it bears repeating, I think, the eight minutes and 46 seconds that it, for George Floyd's murder, I think that happening during a pandemic when people were locked to see something, that this stuff isn't new, that sadly, this was a time when eyes were open and there was no way of saying that didn't happen. There became this very potent time when all eyes were like, like we were all just slammed with bright light. I mean, the, the kind of light that you squint from because it's so painful. I think for people of color, it was like, we've been saying this has happened and now suddenly everyone's like, oh, wow, looks, look what's happening. Um, and I mean, it's not that this had not been happening. This had been happening so much that it could be done casually with onlookers and cameras and, you know, with hands in pockets, just chilling while you're snuffing someone's life up. So it has happened with such regularity that there was something casual about that. I think there's been an opportunity right now where conversations are being had. For God's sakes, what started to happen immediately after that was it was like the oh shit light went on, like this panic. Books were purchased. All of a sudden it was like, you know, someone had discovered racism. And I remember just watching this panic, if you will, in America where some were really, and I mean, hearts in the right place. What can I do? What can I learn? I, I, how am I complicit in this? I need to learn something. It actually became very popular to try to be an ally. And, and there were many phone calls and I was grateful for them. But I get these calls of, what can I do? What can I do? What can I read? Do you have any suggestion? And while some people were upset, they're like, you know, don't turn to black people to help right now. I personally didn't have that feeling. I was like, first of all, yeah, ask me how you can help. Because I don't think a white person can help you understand my black experience. So I'm here for it. I have something to say and I want to say it. And I want to share it. I want to talk about coming to the table and having conversations, asking the questions that feel uncomfortable. I'm not interested in shaming people because I want progress and we can't do anything in shame. We can't get anywhere while shaming. Shaming makes people freeze. I don't need anyone frozen. I need everyone in motion so that we can make some change happen so that that doesn't get to be. And that's why I created 400 years. I am really clear. I want people to say, okay, I need to learn something. I am here to learn. I think this is a great time to not just have a lot of history and facts thrown at you. I mean, you can get that anywhere. You can Google that. But to be able to come inside to intimate conversations and shares, to be able to sit and listen and to feel welcome. I want, for the world I want to live in where we all get to walk down the street and there's, I'm not looking for revenge, not at all. I'm looking for equality, that's it. And I don't think that that's something grand I don't want to hear about the little strides that are happening here and there. I'm so sick of the first Blacks being celebrated of whatever. I need that to be a norm. But we have a whole lot of unlearning to do before that can happen. And so to stay consistent is what my ask is. It is uncomfortable. That's great. I celebrate anyone who is feeling uncomfortable because that's exactly where you need to be. There is nothing comfortable about unlearning racism. More about 400 years. Okay. More about how do you see that unlearning 
and that listening, deep listening, contributing to collective power. 400 years is a program. And when I tell you this baby birthed, I do, I do emotional release work. That is, I work with the body, releasing uh, trauma, releasing fear, grief, a lot of grief work, anger. And I've been doing this for years and it's been wonderful. So George Floyd's murder happens. I'm traumatized. I, for nights upon nights, I woke with sweats and worry that that was someone, my, one of my grandsons, my brothers, it, people, people I knew and loved were under that knee. That's what happened for me and many other people of color. Meanwhile, I'm getting these phone calls. People were like, what can I do? What can I do? And I, you know, and I kept saying, you, you really can't do anything right now. You're not, you can't in that state. It's almost like, you know, running from a burning house and saying, how can I help? How can I help? You are freaked out. We're fight or flight. We're doing the thing. To be of really good use, in my opinion, we need to just take a breath. We need to calm down. Like, okay, what can I learn about the situation? Like, what, what kind of fire is going on in the house? Does it need foam or water? We need to take that breath so that we know how to approach this thing. That needs to happen in safety, meaning everyone has to feel safe. People of color and white people, we all need to be able to be calm and look at it. What's happening in our bodies? What do we want to do? What I love about 400 years, this is a course that I just said, the body cannot be left out of learning, unlearning racism. You cannot leave the body out because we have actually learned through the body. So we can't learn, unlearn it without including the body. And one of the things I really love about this interview, Rita, is that you asked several times what was happening in my body. Sometimes racism, many times, is learned just by feeling a mother tense as she holds a child's hand when she's in the company of people who don't look like her. Or maybe uh, she's carrying that baby in her belly and it's the way she is, the way my mother might have been around white people. We learn this. It's in the DNA. So learning to have the comfort in body when we are in around other people means paying attention to what's happening in our bodies. The name of the course, 400 Years Unlearning Racism Through the Body storytelling and deep listening. It is a time for people to come together, for white people to just to listen, to learn, to learn in a different way where they hear stories, we talk. One of our courses during that four month thing is a panel of seven black men that come on for Q and A. I think so many people want to unlearn racism and the very bodies that they see that have brought this thing to the height are not included. Their voices and their bodies are not there. You know, there are things that we do throughout this thing to make for an intimate setting. We set the table every time we get together. I want people to feel like they are coming to my house for dinner. Sometimes you need to push away from the table. Sometimes you need to stretch. Every dish isn't for you, but you will always feel welcome. You will always be seen. It's learning about the axiology and where we are from. People from the North have different issues. They're, they're, they're more concerned about the growing season and what has to happen. And so there's a colder way of looking at things because they're more numbers and, and people from the equator are more about the relationship. We learn how to work together. We study axiology and how we have to live in this world together and I want to. We learn about our differences so that we can have a real lived experience of what each other is, what's going on with each other. When you get to unlearn what is there, you, you find out about, wow, I didn't even know that was there. I didn't even know that 
you know, when I would see a scene with police pulled over and, you know, and, and clearly this isn't all the time, but this was my experience. If I'm riding by in the car, I just assume that that person has done something awful. Not, I wonder if something awful is happening to that person. Unlearning means taking the pause to question. It actually makes for a kinder society. I see the unlearning gets to happen in a very healthy way, always checking in with the body. What's going on for me? What's happening in my throat? Where do I feel this in my body? And what's the story there? Am I going to do something with this unlearning? I think of that oyster that gets that irritation in it, that sand that gets in it, that creates this awful, itchy, irritation and that mucus starts to build. I feel like we literally are going through the ring of fire or through this very uncomfortable time, this irritation, and we get to make something really beautiful out of it. We get to learn, we get to grow in new ways that's going to affect our bodies. It's going to affect the way we look at other people that don't look like us and how we could actually Imagine looking out at them without walls up, with a softening in our body to understand, to ask questions. I think that contributes to a, a kinder, a gentler world. That's what I want to see. It's been such a treat to have you, Bernadette. How do people reach you? Oh, through the website. Thank you so much for this, Rita. It's just been wonderful. My website is theemotionalinstitute.com. And all courses and offerings are available there. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.